the first dimension, holy perfection. Quote from Ichazo, the awareness that reality is a process moving with direction and purpose. Within this movement, each moment is connected by the process with the one goal and thus is perfect. As we have seen, each holy idea is a view of reality from an egoless perspective, from outside, we might say, the cage of ego. From the point of view of holy perfection, if we experience reality just the way it is, we perceive its intrinsic perfection. We cannot add or delete anything to make that reality more perfect. Nothing needs to be done with it. From holy truth, which is the space that exists beyond the ego cage of the eighth dimension, we learn that reality is non-dual, that everything that exists is one indivisible truth. Holy perfection teaches us that this reality is not only one indivisible nowness, but that it is absolutely perfect. Holy perfection is another way of seeing holy truth, as is holy love, which is, of course, that space in the ninth dimension. So holy truth, holy love, and holy perfection, eight, nine, and one, are three ways of seeing the totality of existence. They are all true at the same time. Truth, love, perfection. Holy perfection is related to the concept of mirror-like wisdom in the system of Jnani Buddhas in the Vajrayana branch of Buddhism. The perfection of reality can be seen only if our consciousness is like a clear mirror which reflects everything as it is, without projection or distortion. When we perceive with this clarity, we recognize that reality has a sense of purity, neatness, immaculateness, and beauty inherent in it. The experience is both outwardly and inwardly perfect and luminous. We are not seeing reality through the filter of our own ideas, and so its perfection is not based on an opinion, a point of view, a preference, or an evaluation. When our perception is like a clear mirror without subjective judgment, we find reality to be just right. If our mirror creates any distortion, if our perception of reality contains any subjective preferences or ideas, then we are seeing reality from a deluded point of view and we will miss its inherent perfection. This makes our work very obvious to find out what is in the way of perceiving reality as it is, to find out what our obscurations are, where our perception is deluded. 
The way we ordinarily see the world is not the way it really is, because we see it from the perspective of our judgments and our preferences, our likes and dislikes, our fears and our ideas of how things should be. So to see things as they really are, which is to see things objectively, we have to put these aside. In other words, we have to let go of our minds. Seeing things objectively means that it doesn't matter whether we think what we're looking at is good or bad. It means just seeing it as it is. If a scientist is conducting an experiment, they don't say, I don't like this, so I'll ignore it. They may not personally care for the results because they don't conf confirm their theory. But pure science means seeing things the way they really are. If we say that we are not going to pay attention to the experiment because we don't like it, if we say we're not going to pay attention to life because we don't like it, that is not science. And that is not holy perfection. Yet this is the way most of us deal with reality, inwardly and outwardly. To see reality from the perspective of holy perfection means to see that reality is just right as it is. It does not need changes or corrections. This is a very radical notion. If we really took it seriously, we would stop doing many of the things that we do. The moment we see that everything at every moment is perfect, we see that our effort to make things better is pointless. We see that what really needs to be done is to observe our minds, our consciousness, in order to see why they are obscured, why they do not see things clearly, and what is making our mirror so cloudy. Understanding this holy idea, then, can profoundly reorient our ideas about the purpose of so-called spiritual work. If reality is inherently perfect, and we are part of that reality, the purpose of working on ourselves cannot be to try to become better or to make our lives better. Holy perfection, which elucidates the objective condition of reality, tells us that reality is already and always perfect. So, if we think that our perfection is something to be achieved, that means that we believe that perfection exists somewhere in the future and not now. We are then taking perfection to be a goal to be actualized rather than how things already are. And this can only be the perspective, you guessed it, of the ego cage. Perfection, as the ego understands it, is determined by measuring reality, inner and outer, against some ideal or standard of how things are supposed to be. The criteria for this judgment may vary from person to person, but for everyone this quest for perfection is the cause of much of our internal striving. This is not perfection at all, but rather perfectionism. The perfection we are talking about here is independent of these ideas. It is true for everything that exists by the mere fact of its existence. Let's say that again. Holy perfection pertains to that 
which exists by the mere fact of its existence, which is to say that it pertains to everything, everything in consciousness. Holy perfection is difficult to define exactly because, like all the holy ideas, it is a universal concept, a platonic form. As such, the perfection we are discussing cannot be analyzed or reduced to simpler elements. It is a pure form of manifestation. From the perspective of holy perfection, everything looks just right. Everything feels perfect and complete. Every action is correct and graceful. We see that whatever happens is the perfection of holy truth, which is everything. We know this with certainty, without necessarily knowing what makes everything perfect. This sense of the intrinsic rightness of the reality that is inside and outside everyone is a feeling, a recognition, an action of intelligence. It involves no conceptualizing about perfection. Holy perfection reflects the intactness, the completeness and the glory of what is. It is the perception of the perfection of all phenomena from every angle on all levels all the way through. This is what makes holy perfection holy, objective and also egoless. If something was seen as perfect and another thing not, or if it were perceived as perfect now and at another point no longer perfect, this would not be holy perfection, but rather the ego's sense of perfection based on subjective judgment. If we experience things in the moment without thinking in terms of the past and the future, just right here in the now and see the isness of what is here, we will recognize the perfection that we're talking about. We won't be looking at what is here through the filter of our ideas, which are the result of what we've heard or seen in the past or what we think is going to happen in the future. No, holy perfection is the perfection of what is, and reality exists only now, only in this moment, as I am reading these words to you from this book, without the concept of time, without our ideas about what's going to happen tomorrow, what's not going to happen tomorrow, without our, our ideas about what should or shouldn't happen, without judgments of good and bad, just the experience of the isness of the now is perfect. If we see reality the way it is right now, we see that everything we perceive is co-emergent with being. Everything is made up of essence. Everything, our bodies, our minds, our feelings, our thoughts, physical objects, everything is made out of this complete, pure beingness of presence. This is the experience of holy perfection. When we experience an essential state fully, we can recognize that it has this quality of perfection. We can't say that it needs something or that it is lacking anything. If we are, say, experiencing love or compassion, for instance, we perceive it as pure and complete, just the way it is.
And this applies, of course, to everyone who is experiencing the fixations and passions of their own egoic dimensions. For example, if you are in the fourth dimension and you are experiencing abandonment and what you might perceive as a kind of emotional cruelty, well, this too, if you perceive it as pure and complete, just the way it is, is holy perfection. Holy perfection tells us that everything has a quality of rightness and maybe even ripeness to it, not just certain essential states. We have seen that from the perspective of holy truth, the holy facet of unity in the eighth dimension, everything is one, an undivided wholeness. Our bodies, our essence, the world, God, life, are not separate things. They are all one thing, and that one thing, which is not a thing, is the presence of essence. Because everything is ultimately essential, it follows that everything is inherently perfect. We don't normally see reality this way because we are busy looking at it from the perspective of our own delusions. Holy perfection cannot be perceived from the point of view of ego because ego, the ego cage, wants to change reality to fit how it sees things, how it thinks things are supposed to be from the perspective of the cage. Holy perfection is, of course, a transcendence of that point of view. It is a stepping out of the cage into life. Realizing holy perfection is not a matter of intellectually asserting that everything is perfect so that we can go on being lazy and irresponsible. No, no, no. To experience holy perfection is to actually exist in a somewhat egoless state and to see the inner nature of everything as objectively as we can. What changes is our way of perceiving so that reality is seen without distortion. Holy perfection reveals that the way things are and the way they move are perfect. Seeing the perfection of the way things are is seeing the perfection of holy truth the indivisible, non-dual, holy truth, where attachment and abandonment are one. Seeing the perfection of the way things move is seeing the perfection of holy will. Holy will, holy freedom, that facet of unity from the second dimension of being, which as we have seen, has mainly to do with change and transformation. Holy truth, that of point eight, and holy will, that of point two, are relatively acceptable to people. But holy perfection is one of the holy ideas that we all have difficulty with. If we really accept 
what holy perfection tells us about the objective state of things, well, that means we can't really complain about how anything is or about anything that happens. Again, for those in the fourth dimension, we can see the glass however we want to see it. We can see it half empty, we can see it half full, but we can't complain about that glass because it is perfect no matter what its contents contain. The fundamental nature of things. If there is an earthquake somewhere, for instance, well, this is the action of holy will. It's difficult for many of us to see perfection in this if hundreds of people die. But perfection does not exist on this level of discourse. We too will die in one way or another. It does not exist on the level of someone being killed by a falling rock during an earthquake or someone being killed in a school shooting or someone being killed in whichever way you would like to imagine. Holy perfection recognizes that there is no separate rock and there is no person being hit by it. What we're calling rock and person are nothing but manifestations of the essence of God, of life. So, from the perspective of holy perfection, an inseparable piece of the essence of life, God, falls on another inseparable piece of this essence. One piece of essence connects to another piece of essence. And this is all very graceful. We might even sit back and observe this a bit like we might observe some ballet. Because, well, because it is all the movement of the essence of life. The egoic point of view, that view from the ego cage, is that there are rocks falling on people's heads. There are maybe even metaphorical rocks falling on our heads right at this very moment. And that is terrible. And it is terrible from this vantage point. But holy perfection is not a matter of seeing what happens from this point of view and then trying to change it to make it conform to what we think is right. If we did that, we would have to control nature and we would have to reform the whole of humanity until everyone behaved correctly and perfectly according to what we believe at any given moment is right. Perceiving holy perfection means seeing beyond this level. It means seeing reality from a transcendent point of view, which implies seeing it from outside the ego cage, from an enlightened condition. From this perspective, there is no such thing as an imperfect action. Holy perfection is seen as inherent in everything that happens. The moment we say that what happened is not right, 
He did me wrong. She did me wrong. Life did me wrong. We are really saying that this is not part of holy will or that holy will is acting in an imperfect way, which cannot really be the case. Holy will acts as holy will without any agenda. This does not mean that we have the license to do whatever we want, justifying it with, well, all action is perfect. Only when we are established in holy perfection as opposed to the ego cage of perfectionism, and we can continuously perceive it, can we then act, you might say, totally spontaneously. And this action will naturally then be an expression of fundamental goodness and love. Such action is spontaneously responsible because holy perfection includes the intrinsic intelligence of holy will, the innocence, we might say, of holy will. We might object to this perspective by asserting that death is terrible, including the death, let's say, of a relational connection. So everything that happens surely can't be perfect from the perspective of ego. Well, yes, it is terrible. But from this perspective of this enlightened state of holy perfection, we don't see people dying. We don't see people leaving each other. We don't see buildings falling. We see the fundamental nature of these things, whether the form of H2O is water or ice at a particular moment, for instance, doesn't change its fundamental nature. Death, separation, termination, suspension, divorce is just about one form of life changing into another form. Holy perfection implies then that one doesn't perceive just the surface of things, but rather one perceives this fundamental level. When we remain on the level of differentiation, details and discrimination, we are involved with preferences and judgments. And this, of course, gives us a position, a position we might call the ego cage. And when we look from this position, of course, we do not see the full dimensionality and inherent freedom, if you like, of reality. Holy truth, as we have seen, tells us that reality exists in the now as the now. By now, I'm not referring to part of a sequence in time. If we stay in the present and our consciousness is really present in this moment, not wandering to the past or wandering to the future, we recognize that the now is not about time. It is not a point between the past and the future. The now is this book that I am reading to you, is this meditation cushion that I am sitting on whilst reading. It is this slight pain in my back and in the bottom of my neck because of how I slept. The now is this discomfort in my belly and this 
compression of the cushion against my rectum. All of this, we could say, is made out of now. All of this is the now, is the present. And we are presence and we are being. We are now. When we see the beingness, the thereness of everything, well, this is when we then recognize the intrinsic perfection and rightness of it all. The rightness and the ripeness. The moment our mind wanders to the past or the future, our focus is not on the intrinsic reality of things. Our mind is focusing on the changing of the forms and the implications we believe these changes had or will have. Then we lose the perception of what truly exists right at this moment. So holy perfection is seeing holy truth in a certain way. It is seeing that holy truth means that everything everywhere is just right at any point in time or space. When we recognize this, this becomes an important foundational basis for our work, for our life. We can then see that working on ourselves is really not a matter of trying to get ourselves to some place where we feel perfect, where we feel that life is perfect. It is instead a matter of discovering the perfection that is already here, enjoying the journey that is already here, enjoying the perfection of this discomfort, if this is the discomfort that is in consciousness. It is a matter of seeing through our obscurations with awareness and understanding rather than a matter of making anything happen. Just being with whatever we are experiencing is sufficient to experience, it's the only thing to experience, and it is inherent perfection. This acceptance of what is, is not the ego's version of acceptance, which of course is the opposite of rejection. Oh, I don't want this. Okay, I'll accept it. If you say, I'm accepting this now, well, <laughs> aren't we making a judgment that, okay, now this thing is okay, and we've decided to accept it, but before it wasn't okay, and in a moment it, it might not become okay again, because it's probably not okay. But do we decide that we're going to accept the sun? Do we decide that we're going to accept the death of our parents or our own death? The sun's existence is a fact. So the acceptance that leads to holy perfection is a not saying no to anything, but equally it's a not saying yes. Let's repeat that because we're always in yes, no mind. Holy perfection is not about saying no to anything and also it's not about saying yes. If we really let ourselves be here in this moment, we will find that everything begins to glow.
Everything is radiant, luminous, clear and transparent. This glowing, luminous awareness has within it all kinds of wonderful qualities. Love, harmony, beauty, grace. This is undeniably the actual condition of everything, but in the ego cage, <laughs> we're not usually focused on this, so we don't really see things as they are. Once we become aware of our ego cage, we can start to see that our perception of many, many things has been out of focus most of our lives and that we have come to believe that our distorted perception is how things are. To see the world from the perspective of holy perfection then, we have to be in the moment, in contact with our presence, our beingness, just as it is right here, right now. Our awareness must be with what exists now, what we are experiencing in our bodies, what sounds we are hearing, what the temperature is in the environment, what thoughts are running or rushing through our minds. The more we are present in the now, we, the more we recognize that the now has nothing to do with time and that the now is, of course, everything. When we see that, then we can have certainty. Then we can have an innate knowingness that this is how things are. When our lens of perception is finally corrected, if you like, in this way, when we step out of the ego cage, we innately know that we are seeing really clearly and it is obvious to us at that moment just how focused our lens has been. We know then that we are not interfering with reality. We are seeing things the way they are. We are also seeing people with all the problems that we have with people as the way they are. Maybe we are also seeing them with some compassion from how they are in their ego cage and we are seeing the events that make up our lives, our struggles if you like, as perfect, just perfect. Comparative judgment. So We've discussed what holy perfection means. Now let us explore what happens when the intrinsic perfection of existence is not perceived. And this is often the case, maybe even usually the case. As we have seen, a specific delusion arises as a direct result of the perceptual absence of each holy idea. This delusion underlies a particular way of experiencing and approaching reality, and it forms the center of the core of each fixation. The delusion arises concurrently with the loss of the idea and with the loss of the sense of being 
held in early childhood. Holy perfection, as we have seen, means that everything is perfect and everything is just right. If that perception is not there, then there is the conviction that some things are less perfect than others, or that some things are perfect and others are not. There is the sense that something is wrong somewhere. The belief arises that there is really and absolutely such a thing as good and bad and right and wrong, that some things are intrinsically better than other things, and that we can make comparative judgments about what exists. There must be, of course, at least two things to be able to make a comparison. And this is the delusion of duality that we have seen in the eighth dimension. Here, not only are we comparing things and saying that this one is small and that one is big, but also that big in the eighth dimension is better. So, not only is there comparison of at least two discrete entities, but there is also a value judgment in the eighth dimension, and usually in every dimension, some kind of value judgment is being carried out. If we are in the fourth dimension, to be together, to be with the beloved, is better than not being with the beloved, for example. The delusion of our first dimensional ego cage, then, is the conviction that comparative judgments are ultimate and final. Our delusion is that comparative judgments are ultimate and final. Things can, of course, be compared on the surface, but to believe that such comparisons reflect this fundamental nature, that this is right and this is wrong, and this is good and this is bad, well, this, of course, is a delusion of the ego. Comparative judgment on the relative level is useful sometimes, but when we are talking about holy ideas, we are talking about a way of experiencing things that is transcendent to this relative level. We are talking about stepping out of the ego cage. So we're not saying that because everything is perfect, you should eat food even if it's rotten. We're also not saying that if we are sick, we shouldn't go to a doctor. Obviously, if we want to be healthy, we take care of ourselves, and there is a comparative judgment involved in that. Holy perfection does not negate this level of things, but when we talk about our beingness, our innate existence, we are discussing here a level of reality beyond the particularities of whether our bodies are healthy or not, or even whether we are living or not. From this perspective, even the cancer that kills us is part of the perfection of all that is. Ultimately, as we have seen, even our death, our fundamental non-existence, the non-existence of this consciousness that is aware, that is talking here, that is perceiving and hearing the words and the concepts of this moment, even the death of this consciousness is simply part of our fundamental nature and part of all that exists, simply changing from one form into another, from life into death, 
from together into apart. We usually adhere to the egoic point of view of reality because we believe that that is the way we will survive. But when we step out of the cage and we see our cage and everyone else's cages from this more objective point of view, the objective point of view, the point of view in a way of this text, or what this text is pointing to, does not eliminate the ego cage, the egoic point of view. It, it underlies that cage, it contains it, it is the ground on which that cage stands. The body, for example, has a circulatory system and an immune system. These inner features are not apparent on the surface. And if we don't take these into consideration, we are not being objective about the body. And our chances of survival will maybe be lower. So taking into account the objective point of view, the point of view of one who is standing even just for the reading of this chapter outside the ego cage does not eliminate the surface, does not eliminate the cage. Yes, there is a face, there is skin, there is feet. But the view, the ground, the body of being outside the cage adds much more to the situation. As we have seen, the loss of the holy idea of each Enneatype type leads to each type's specific delusion. The loss of the holding environment leads to the specific difficulty that we perceive in our lives. And the loss of basic trust leads to our specific reaction. The delusion is what determines the characteristics of both our difficulty and our reaction. Wrongness. In the first dimension, the specific difficulty is the feeling or conviction that something is wrong with us, that we are imperfect in an intrinsic way, that we are fundamentally flawed. It is not that we did something wrong and maybe we feel guilty about it, as in the eighth dimension, but rather that there is something inherently wrong with who and what we are, but also that there is something inherently wrong with what we are experiencing, with what we are perceiving as our world, our environment, our situation. From the beginning of the birth of the ego, the construction of the ego cage, Deficiency in the holding environment is experienced through the filter of comparative judgment. We experience something painful about this holding, about not being taken care of adequately or not feeling held. And we experience this as a wrongness, as a flaw. 
Because we don't understand or perceive, certainly not as children, the holy idea of perfection, we interpret the absence of holding, maybe the holding by a parent in some physical or emotional form, as meaning that something is wrong with us, or something is wrong with them, but certainly something is wrong with all of this. Later, we try to find out what is flawed. We might go into therapy to do this, or we might follow certain ways of being, ways of acting, ways of working. Usually, we pick on our body or our mind, finding one thing or another thing that is wrong, and we believe that that's why, maybe, our parents didn't love us or take care of us as adequately as we needed. Or we pick on something that is wrong with them, and that's why the narcissists. They didn't love us or take care of us as adequately as we needed. But underlying this is the deeper conviction that something much more intrinsic is wrong with us, that something is wrong with our being itself. Something is wrong with the first dimension. The conviction that there is something fundamentally wrong with us is not restricted, of course, <laughs> to those of us who exist in the first dimension. All dimensions, all ego dimensions have this. Just as all children grow up with the conviction of the eighth dimension that they have done something wrong, so all children grow up feeling that something is inherently wrong with them or inherently wrong with their parents. This is universal to the nature of ego, and we are all usually busy trying to find out what is wrong with us or them or life so that we can correct it, so that we can fix it, so that we can overcome it. As with any other dimension in the Enneagram, this conviction cannot be remedied by the experience of an essential state because it is not due to the loss of some essential aspect or quality of being, like love or joy. It is not a whole, H-O-L-E. We are not a whole, H-O-L-E. When the holy idea of perfection is not present, it does not matter which differentiated aspect of being we are experiencing. The delusion that some things are perfect and others are not, and the feeling or conviction that we are inherently flawed, or that life in some way, the life that is happening now, or that is we perceive is going to be happening in the future, is flawed, remains. It is, it is a conviction in the soul that is determined by the delusion of comparison. I like this, I don't like that. This is good, this is bad. This is right and this is wrong. It is a crystallized belief or idea about oneself that twists the soul in a particular contorted, we might say, way. Only understanding and embodying the holy idea, the holy idea of perfection, will change this and will bring us the serenity, the equanimity, and the peace 
that we all aspire to. The holy idea is that everything is perfect. If everything is perfect, there can't be anything fundamentally wrong with us because we are part of everything. The loss of this perspective means that we perceive that something is wrong somewhere and as we have seen, we usually turn on ourselves and we feel flawed in comparison to something or someone else. Or we turn on someone else, not in a good way, and find them flawed in comparison to an idea in our minds or to some sort of social construct. This comparing of ourselves to an idea of how we could be begins in childhood as the discrimination between how we felt when the holding, the holding environment was there and how we felt when it was not, between what was experienced as perfect and what was experienced as imperfect. So ultimately, the comparison is between our own experiences at different times and not between our experience and someone else's experience. We feel bad, flawed, imperfect, not doing enough, not doing well enough in relation to a picture of perfection, an idea, an image of perfection in our minds. Just the fact that we believe that there is something wrong with us indicates the belief that there is such a thing as perfection, which we are not and which we do not have. This judgment about what is not right about ourselves or about another person who we are finding lacking in some way or about a piece of life that we believe is not working for us is based on comparisons according to a very subjective standard. This standard becomes elaborated later by our superego, our social environment, as well as our spiritual values. And it changes depending on what we are involved in and what is influencing us most deeply. And of course, there is always some kind of righteousness about clinging to that thing that we believe is right and to shunning and pushing away that thing and throwing shade on that thing that we believe is wrong. Self-improvement. As we have seen, each dimension of being has a specific reaction, an activity one engages in in response to our specific difficulty. This results from the loss of basic trust as filtered through the delusion. So for example, for this reader who lives mainly in the ego cage of the fourth dimension, the difficulty is that of melancholy, is that of a kind of woe-begone sadness which stems from the delusion of the glass half-empty 
um, as I like to put it. I wake on this day, this Saturday, in which I am doing the reading, and the mind finds a delusive perspective of my reality and how, at a relational level, the glass is half empty. And from that comes the difficulty, the fixation of melancholy and following on from that, the reaction of envy. Someone else is in a caring, loving, fulfilled and sexy relationship and I am not. That kind of thing. When we experience this in whichever dimension in which we find ourselves, we are experiencing these painful and suffering thoughts, feelings, because basic trust is not present. Basic trust, let us remind ourselves, is that unspoken, implicit trust that that what is optimal will happen. The sense that whatever happens <laughs> is ultimately fine and ultimately optimal. We can see also how this is tied in with holy perfection. That sense that nature, the universe, and all that exists are of their very nature good and trustworthy. That what happens is the best that can happen. Basic trust is a non-conceptual confidence in the goodness of the universe, an unquestioned, implicit trust that there is something about the universe, something about human nature and life that is inherently and fundamentally good and loving and wishing us the best. This innate and unformulated trust in life and reality manifests then as a willingness to take that plunge, shall we say, into the abyss, the abyss of moving out of the ego cage, perhaps. For us in the first dimension of being, the loss of basic trust is seen through the lens of comparative judgment, and the result is the reaction of trying to make ourselves better. We believe that something is wrong with us, and so we try to fix ourselves. And there is a resentful attitude in doing this of comparing, judging, and criticizing ourselves, as well as an obsessive and maybe even compulsive kind of activity to change or modify ourselves or our experience. The presence of this specific difficulty always puts us on the lookout for our flaws. We observe ourselves scanning for any imperfection or wrongness so that we can correct it. If we are involved in spiritual work, the self-observation that is usually part of this is latched onto by the ego so that we can figure out what is our problem and how we can change it. And equally, this will come up for those who are involved in psycho work, psycho-spiritual work, those of us who are in therapy. Latching on to what is our problem and how can we change it. 
We check out our level of understanding and development and then we compare it to others. We compare our current state to what it was when we thought we were more enlightened or younger or doing something different or following a certain course or plan compared to what we are doing now. We measure ourselves against our standard of how a truly evolved, a truly uh, psychotherapized, a truly spiritual whoever person is supposed to be and where in our spiritual development we should be now. And this creates, as I'm sure you're well aware, incessant mental activity. We cannot leave ourselves alone and we cannot leave all the issues that are pertaining to the self alone. We're always picking, picking on ourselves like, like someone picking at a scab perhaps, believing that you know, if we were different, if we could just, uh, if we could just get rid of this scab, which of course will will come back as soon as you know there's some blood and then it scabs over again. If if only we could get rid of this, then if only we we could be different, then then we could rest, then we could have the serenity that we are seeking. But rest doesn't usually come this way because there is really nothing at all fundamentally wrong with us but at a non-fundamental level there is everything wrong with us everything right with us take your pick we may even have noticed us folk in the first dimension that when we are having fun we still don't leave ourselves alone even when things actually feel fine we still sort of check to see whether this is what is supposed to be happening is this okay to feel if I were, you know, enlightened, would feeling pleasure be all right? Maybe I should be feeling something different. We always find ways to disturb ourselves, to disturb our experience, to disturb the now. This ego activity, this thing we do in our ego cage, is by its very nature resentful in the sense that we are aggressively and judgmentally saying no no to our experience. Let's just feel into that for a moment. Is this not what we're doing? <laughs> Saying, and, and is there not anger and rejection towards our experience, which of course is anger and rejection towards ourselves? We are essentially saying, are we not? I don't want this. We're saying this to our experience, and therefore, we are also saying this to our being, our essence, our life force. We are saying, I don't want this. That's what we're saying to our experience. The resentment is not always felt, but it is implicit in all of our activity in the ego cage. When we try to improve ourselves and it doesn't work, we might become aware at that point of feeling resentful. But I did, I did all of this for myself. I did all of this. Of course, the two might be, I did all of this for you. But we're very much, I did all of this for life, for you life. And this is how you pay me back. But we are really just feeling the resentment <laughs> that was already there. This resentment is not just something that we in the first dimension experience. This is 
pervasive to most human animals, moment by moment, minute to minute experiencing of, of their lives, whether consciously perceived or not, and is, of course, perhaps the greatest part of our suffering as human creatures. Most of us approach spiritual work, also psycho-spiritual work, with the belief that if we work on ourselves hard enough, we will finally, finally hit upon the right state, and then we will be able to leave ourselves alone. We might stay in therapy for years and years and years. We're continuously working, continuously working on improving ourselves, on getting out of our rut, whatever that rut of life is, on getting out of life, essentially, on getting out of the rut of life, on getting out of life. We believe that something will happen to us. We will be hit by a bolt of lightning and we will be transformed and then we won't have to improve ourselves anymore. Shazam! Trying to find the right state or right trick to get into this enlightened, um, therapized, self-improved, however you want to call it, state, does not work in the way we want it to work because from the enlightened state, you could say, we might see that everything, including ourselves, is already perfect and needs no changes to be made. Which is not to say that we don't do some cosmetic changes, some flexible preferences along the lines of, well, that'd be quite nice if that were to occur, but hey-ho, let's see what happens. No, we don't do that. <laughs> and yet, of course, from this perspective, shall we say, outside the ego cage, enlightenment, holy perfection, is really part of our innate nature. We don't need to be hit or to stumble upon anything. And maybe we can even leave ourselves alone right now, which is not to say abandon ourselves or stop focusing on those things that are meaningful and important to us, but rather that we can do these things because we are drawn to do them because we find pleasure and interest in doing them rather than because our main focus is on self-improvement. So what we really need to do, you could say, is to see through the specific reaction. In this case, it is anger and upset identify the specific difficulty within ourselves, which is a kind of uh, resentment, and also the specific delusion, which is this kind of comparative mind, this fault-finding mind, both in ourselves, I'm not good enough, in others, why aren't they doing this, why can't they be there for me, why can't they, whatever. And then, maybe, just maybe, we are approaching
the dimensions of the holy idea. Only this, you could say, can stop our obsessive tendency to better ourselves. Only if we are able to really, really throw ourselves into the abyss, <laughs> the abyss of non-self-improvement, are we maybe able to start seeing that our perfection does not depend on what state we are in or what kind of life circumstances we have. It is really just the object of truth about all states at all times. They are perfect because they are in consciousness and we are experiencing them. Or maybe we are being experienced by them. Maybe we are to bring this holy idea, this holy facet of the fourth dimension um, into our conversation, which of course, fourth dimension is always wanting to bring itself into the conversation. This idea of holy origin, maybe all, all is perfect and we are the experience of that perfection. The activity of trying to make ourselves better is a reflection of the distrust that reality is fundamentally perfect the way it is and that it will unfold in a perfect way. If we are saying, no, reality is imperfect, there could be a better reality, a better version of reality, well, we are fundamentally distrustful and mistrustful of what is. And this distrust of course, is experienced through the filter of our delusion, this comparative mindset, so that the judgment of good and bad is seen as ultimate and intrinsic. Or maybe to quote a friend in the first dimension who said to me, well, if my therapist is wearing slippers in our sessions, this is bad. But if they're wearing shoes, this is good. Another way that the activity of the specific reaction of this dimension can manifest is as an obsessive tendency to prove to oneself and to others that there is nothing wrong with us, that we do live up to the right standards, and that we are right and good. Some people, for instance, always need to be right, regardless of what the situation is. In fact, I would say quite a lot of people are like this. This attitude of always proving to ourselves or to other people that we are perfect and right is, of course, a way to cover up the belief or feeling that there is something wrong with us. It's a kind of reaction formation to use that psychoanalytic term, doing just the opposite of what we consciously or unconsciously believe about ourselves. If we really feel that we are okay, why do we have to prove it? Why do we need to compulsively prove that we are right or good or kind or whatever to ourselves or to other people? If we really felt okay about ourselves, we wouldn't need to confirm this or have it confirmed by anyone. The activity of the specific reaction then, which is that of anger, resentment, can vary between always trying to make ourselves better and always trying to prove that we are good and right. 
People are divided in terms of which of these behaviors predominates, but underlying both of these styles of behavior is the conviction that there is something wrong with ourselves. In other words, it is a specific reaction to the belief or feeling that there is something wrong with me. I am wrong. I am not as I should be. So now we see the whole constellation. We are always busy watching ourselves, comparing ourselves, and judging ourselves. We don't just see the state we are experiencing as it is. We have to compare it to something else, another state, or a similar state we experienced at another time, or with some idea in our minds. We are not just with our experience. It is always viewed from another perspective, from another place, in a comparative way, instead of just seeing it for what it is, just as it is. And of course, when we are seeing it from another perspective, we are not really living. We are always at one remove from our lives. And if we look at our experience or someone else or anything in the world in this way and compare whether it is good or better or less than something else, we do that because, well, because we want to make it better. Or at least that's where it starts. This is not as it should be, and how it should be would be better, and so let's make it better, including let's make myself better, or let's make another person better, or let's make my experience better. And this means that we believe that there really is something wrong. And for that to happen, we are missing out on holy perfection. It's very important that we understand that if we think we need to look at ourselves and our experiences in a judgmentally comparative way, our motivation is probably not that of understanding, and our activity will not be that of being. However we, however we understand being, and maybe for a one, being is it's enjoying the journey. It's saying, yes, this is life, and I like it. I like it like this, because it is perfect. Damn, it's good. But in the first dimension, <laughs> not much of this is going on. And this is because, as we are in all the dimensions, for the most part, we are in a, we're in a cage. We're in a cage of the ego. Real activity the activity of living, the activity of being alive, is not really a matter of comparing and judging. It's a matter of experiencing things as they are and responding, we might say, from the dynamic intelligence of being. Oh, this, oh, this, oh, this, oh, that, oh, this, oh, oh, oh. The underlying motivation in it is that we are curious to know about what we are observing because we love experiencing reality <laughs> and it's good to love experiencing reality because of course there's no other thing available to us to experience. This is a very different attitude from that of looking at things with the underlying belief that they or we need to be improved. For someone who is operating objectively we might say whatever comes up is fine. We, we don't even need to say, oh, this is what should be happening, or, oh, 
this is what's happening, but this is what should be happening. Whatever arises is the way it is. And it has a sense of perfection to it. Or at least we might like to call it that. Oh, this shitty thing is now present. Ha, huh, that's perfect. There's no activity of looking for some sublime state to arise. Or some, I don't know, excuse my French, non-shitty thing to arise. If what arises feels sublime, or if it doesn't, well, these are just the specifics. Uh, its perfection is really something much deeper than that. It goes much deeper than shitty language, which can make something shitty by saying it is. If we are not operating from the perspective of objectivity, we are bound to be operating from the perspective of the ego cage. And our experience will invariably include resentment, judgment, comparison. There is no alternative. The more we understand holy perfection, the more these ego activities will slow down. Please God, let them slow down. But it is important to understand that we will still be present with them and feel them and suffer them until the perspective of holy perfection is fully realized. Being operates without the guidance of the mind. Being, this moment in which I am reading, this conscious moment of being, being alive, being alive operates without the guidance of the mind. Being alive does not need the mind. All non-human animals do not need human minds. They're perfectly fine with being. Being operates without the guidance of the mind. We can directly know this to be true when we see this from the perspective of the nine holy ideas. When we are living in the view of holy perfection, in this case, we don't experience ourselves comparing or acting. We simply perceive the world and the whole universe changing. Ah, aha, 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 aha. That's the perception. <laughs> the world and the universe changing. Well, that's my, that's my understanding of that perception. There is no discrimination of who is doing what. The whole universe is acting as one body, flowing this way or that according to its own natural laws, without even the discrimination that 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 or that this is what is happening. Because we usually right, operate from the position of believing that we are separate and that there are discrete entities. And it appears in this case as if we are making things happen and that therefore the comparisons of, well, I made this thing happen and that was good and I made that thing happen and that was not good. Well, then the comparisons appear very real. So if we are operating according to comparative judgment, it means that we believe we are a separate entity with our own separate world, and that duality, all the dualities, alone, in company, 
happy, sad, fulfilled, unfulfilled, courageous, scared, all the dualities, that the dualities are real. But from the perspective of the holy idea, of this sublime idea, which we might even choose to make our terra firma. How was your week? It was perfect. It was perfectly full of the usual shitty struggles that I have every week. It was perfect. How's your life? It's going perfectly well. Which is to say, it's going. Moving towards death at, at a rapid a rapid pace. When we stop operating under the delusion, we might say, of the first dimension, which is to say when we are not engaging in comparative judgment, we realize, or we might realize, that we are not actually separate individuals and we do not actually have a separate world. This is really the delusion, of course, of the fifth dimension. We also might realize that there is no duality in the universe, that we actually do live in a non-dual universe. And this is the duality uh, piece, of course, is the delusion of the eighth dimension. So, the moment we become free from one delusion, we, we might be free from all of them, because each one implies the other. The holy ideas in this way are all connected and the delusions, the fixations, the passions, the difficulties and the reactions, these are all connected too. They are all facets of the same ego and all the holy ideas are facets, we might say, of the same reality. So, it's not really possible to have holy perfection and at the same time believe that we are a separate entity because holy perfection means that everything is perfect and that perfection includes, of course, holy truth, which is to say that everything is one, cut from the same cloth of being, cut from the same cloth of life, without differentiation. We have seen that the idea of holy perfection is, like all the holy ideas, not easy to understand or apprehend, even as I am reading this in a way that makes it sound like, yeah, I've really got it. No, it's not easy to understand or apprehend. This is true because the holy ideas are the opposite of what we usually believe. And what we usually believe is based on the delusions of our ego cages. And surely these delusions must in some way stem from the absence of these perceptions. Let's call them these perceptions of reality because when we call them holy, it sounds like again they're in another dimension, but they're not in another dimension or rather they're in the dimension beyond the egoic dimension, which is that of reality. This makes it very difficult to truly understand and appreciate what the holy ideas, or maybe what the 
the real ideas, the ideas of the real, the ideas of reality are referring to. In particular, the holy ideas of the eighth, ninth, and first dimension are the elucidations of reality in general. So we are really attempting here in this space, in this um, body intelligence instinct uh, operating system to sort of express the mystery of being itself. To understand these ideas is to have a strong sense, whether through experience or intuition, of what we actually mean by intrinsic nature, our intrinsic nature, our human animal nature. Really understanding the holy ideas then means letting go, or maybe it asks us the question, uh, what does it mean to let go of our familiar point of view, of the view from the cage, letting go of it and seeing through it something much more fundamental, something much more basic, something that perhaps cannot, cannot be captured in language. Because what does language do other than differentiate? This is not a little change. It is a great upheaval. It's not a little change. It is a great upheaval. Relative perfection. To more deeply appreciate the idea of holy perfection, we can further explore the difference between its absolute and fundamental notions. The idea that there really is an absolute and fundamental perfection, an absolute right and absolute wrong, or even a this is pretty much right and this is pretty much wrong, and the more relative perfection of our usual points of view. To do this, we'll use the metaphor of gold. From pure 24 karat gold, you can make all sorts of things, such as jewelry or scientific instruments. Imagine that you don't know that gold is precious, and you cannot tell the difference between something made out of brass or out of gold. A ring made out of gold might be perfectly or imperfectly made. It might fit you or it might not. If it fits you and you like the way it was made, you would think that it was perfect, even if it was made out of brass. If it didn't fit, or if it was sloppily made, you would think that it was imperfect. This is perhaps an example of relative perfection. But from the perspective of holy perfection, whatever you make out of the gold, it is still gold. The fact that it is gold doesn't change depending upon whether the jewellery is well made or not, or whether it fits anyone or not, or whether we perceive its preciousness or not. Whatever form it takes is incidental to the fact that it is still fundamentally gold. So seeing the gold of it and seeing that that gold is perfect and pure and luminous is analogous, we might say, to seeing the perfection of reality. Everything that exists is gold. The gold here is being, is life, is consciousness, is God. However, you, <clears throat> whatever term you like to use. And all of reality is, we might say, 
This is gold, is being. The forms that reality take, such as having the form of a ring or that of a bracelet, are sort of incidental. The ego, however, the self, identifies itself with the shape the gold has taken and says, that's me, I'm a ring. And then it decides whether the ring is good or bad or beautiful or ugly and so on. By saying that we are the ring, we forget, however, that we are gold. And when we forget the fact that we are gold, we lose the sense of our absolute perfection and we feel that something is wrong. Obviously, something feels wrong because we are not seeing the true perfection of what we are. When we feel that something is wrong, we try to see what is wrong with this ring. Is it too big? Is it too small? Maybe it shouldn't have been made in a more modern style or maybe in a more classical style. We start trying to improve it a bit. But whatever we do to it, something always feels a little bit off. It will never feel right until we realize that the ring is really gold. No matter what shape or form it is, it is gold. Whether we can wear it or not, it is gold. As long as we don't see the goldness and preciousness of it, you might say, we will always feel that something is wrong with it, and we will always try to tinker with it to make it better. Seeing the gold does not mean that we do not see the ring. It does not eliminate the level of form, the relative level. Just because we realize that it is gold and it is precious and perfect does not mean that if the ring is too small for us that it will suddenly feel comfortable. It won't feel comfortable. The relative judgments don't just disappear. They are there for practical reasons. We might want to get the ring resized. We might want to sell it and uh, buy a ring that fits. But underlying this is something much more fundamental, which is that this ring, this being that is talking to you here, this being that is listening, is precious, regardless of whether it fits or not. What is precious about it is not how it fits, but that it is gold. This is the perception we are trying to penetrate, to see the goldhood, or maybe the godhood of things, rather than the ringhood of things. The ringhood is that which we are focused on in the ego cage. And, and we know this because we see a cage. When there is no cage, we feel ourselves trapped. We are trapped in the ringhood rather than seeing the goldhood. The ego is always seeing rings and deciding on whether they're perfect or not, and this has become a habit. We've become so focused on the shape of the ring that we cannot really see what it is made out of anymore. We see its form rather than its nature, and we define ourselves then by that form. At this point, regardless of how wonderful that form is, we always feel that there is something wrong, that there is something missing, because we are not really experiencing the actual quality of our true nature, of our inner gold. As long as we are not in touch with our intrinsic nature, which is the nature of everything, then there will be 
this nagging sense that something is not right. This nagging feeling is the seed of the fixation, the seed of the difficulty of this dimension, the first dimension. We feel that something is imperfect about us because we are looking at something else and not seeing our perfection. Then follows the activity of comparison, of judgment, of trying to make ourselves and our situation better so that we will feel perfect or it will feel perfect. But we will never feel right. It will never be right until we find a way to just relax and discover what our situation is, what it really is, what is the gold in our situation. Where is the gold? The perspective of the holy ideas, then, is that the totality of the universe and of all that exists is gold. Maybe the gold is covered over here and there with different kinds of obscurations, but nonetheless, everything is really made out of gold. This is why, you could say, there is holy perfection everywhere if only we can see it, and if we can see it, and when we see it, because of course we can, but when we see it, then everything is golden. Even when it's shitty, it's golden. So basically, the state of objective existence, I don't know, whatever you want to call it, nirvana, enlightenment, um, individuation, uh, unity, um, graduating from psychotherapy um, as a healthy adult, whatever it is, is seeing the goldhood of all existence. It's seeing that everything is gold all the time. It never changes. We are usually, however, looking at the incidental forms and the changes of those forms, which are not fundamental to their reality. Therefore, if we believe that we are a ring, obviously losing our shape is cataclysmic. Becoming a puddle of gold would be a terrible thing. It is what we might even call death. But if we know that we are gold, well, what is death? What is losing a part of ourselves or even losing a person? We know that we will be made into something else next time, or that this person that we have lost, this person we are maybe yearning for, I'm still speaking, of course, here from the fourth dimension, that this person will emerge, that this person will emerge or is already present in all the people we know, but not just the people, in all the creatures, in all nature, in everything that is alive. We've discussed the experience of holy perfection and we have explored within ourselves what arises in its absence, comparative judgment and resentful ego activity and the resulting attempt to make oneself better or more perfect. Now let's explore more deeply the remaining element and this is that gnarly specific difficulty, the feeling or conviction that there is something wrong. 
As we have discussed earlier, this is how we experience the lack of holding and the lack of holy perfection. This deep belief that there is something wrong with us very often gets projected outside. So we see something wrong somewhere else or in another person and we try to change it for the better. Working with the difficulty or the fixation core. As we have seen, our usual response to the belief that there is something wrong with us is to try to find out what is wrong so that we can correct it. We might think that our hair is what's wrong, so we go to a hairdresser to have it changed. That doesn't do it, so we decide that we are too fat and we need to go on a diet. Then we think our features are wrong, so, you know, we might need some plastic surgery. Then what's wrong seems to be that we need more money, um, or that we don't have enough friends, or that we don't have a partner, or that um, our we're not doing the right work that we should be doing. And what's wrong, of course, changes all the time. And whatever changes we make, usually, for the most part, never really take away the feeling that something is wrong. We need to see, maybe, that we are always trying to deal with the feeling that there is something wrong. There is actually nothing wrong, of course, um, but there is the feeling that there is something wrong. Something wrong with us, something wrong with another, something wrong with our experience of the world. So. Maybe what we need to do here is to really get in touch with the belief or the feeling that there is something wrong and see what it feels like. We want to identify here and explore this deficient, if you like, deficient state of the soul that constantly impels us to better ourselves. For different dimensions of the Enneagram, the experience of deficiency will vary slightly, but as long as we have an ego, we have the sense that something is wrong with us, with the self. As long as we have the conviction that our soul itself is flawed, it doesn't matter how perfect our body or our mind or our life is. None of these do it for us. We always have the feeling that something is wrong. The point here, though, is not that we are a flawed ring. It is that we're not really a ring at all. We believe that our real nature is flawed because we do not see that it is gold. We probably think that it is, I don't know, tin. But what if we saw that it, that it is gold? Maybe we would see then that it is not flawed and that in an intrinsic way it is, dare we say, perfect. As we penetrate the feeling of wrongness and recognize that this is a feeling that has nothing to do with reality. It is a feeling and it is usually thought and it is usually a whole bunch of language about what is not going well, then, then that can become a channel to reveal our actual perfection. And at that moment, we can begin to enjoy the journey, the journey that is reality, the real journey, as opposed to the delusive one. As long as we believe that we can find something wrong with ourselves, well, then we can hate ourselves for this thing that we find wrong. If we can investigate, however, the ego cage of judging and comparing ourselves, we will start to perhaps see the hatred 
and the cruelty in doing this. But if we explore the actual feeling of wrongness, we will also see that we cannot really find anything that we can put our finger on that is fundamentally wrong. Because what's wrong keeps on changing. It is a belief that is arising because we do not really have a certain perception of ourselves. If we really see that it is just a belief, it's a sort of basic attitude, and the feeling of wrongness and of badness accompanying this belief, well then, we might start to recognize that it is based on a kind of mental perspective, a delusion. And once we can see the delusion, we can move past, under, behind, <laughs> away from, uh, through the delusion. And I guess it becomes more possible to let go of it, or at least to not suffer it as much as we normally do. The activity of trying to find out what is wrong with us and to make ourselves better becomes superfluous when we recognize our delusion for what it is. We recognize that this activity of finding wrong in ourselves, in our experience, in others, is a waste since it, it won't really do anything because there's nothing fundamentally wrong to correct anyway. And perhaps this is how we can start to dissipate the anger and the resentment of things not being the way they should be. As long as we believe that there is something wrong with us, we feel motivated to continue with whatever the setting ourselves right activity is with the searching. But when we recognize that we have a belief that makes us sort of ignorant about the true nature of things, we can see that this is a kind of ignorance, this is a kind of uh, illusion, delusion, but it's not wrongness. This is just a kind of ignorance. We believe something about reality that's not true. It is a hallucination. And let's not feel bad about that, because we're all hallucinating our way through our lives. We're all kind of zombies, even when we're walking around trying to be mindful. The felt conviction that there is something wrong with us indicates the delusion, the comparative judgment. We need to experience fully, we might say, this specific difficulty of feeling wrong or of feeling bad if we are going to discern the delusion implicit in it. When we really experience the feeling of wrongness and recognize that this is based on a delusion, a delusion that there is something wrong, some place, somewhere, in some self, well, it then maybe becomes possible to see, perhaps for the first time, holy perfection. When reality is seen in its objectivity, there is not only the luminous sense of perfection and completeness, but there is also the cessation or lessening of the activity of mental checking and comparison and trying to change our state, our state of being, rather than being. We begin to leave ourselves alone more, perhaps, and at some point we don't even think about whether what we experience is good or bad. There is a kind of settledness or lightness or softness, a sense of holding and trust manifests. And this 
manifestation is something along the lines of things are right and will be right in an intrinsic way. The universe is all right and it functions in an intelligent way. My being in the world is all right and I function in an intelligent way. So perceiving holy perfection allows basic trust to arise. If everything is perfect, then we can trust it. We can trust its functioning and its changes because we realize in a kind of intrinsic way that it is all sort of okay. It's all right. Basic trust means trust about the fundamentals, about the intrinsic nature of things, about ultimate reality. As we have seen, the wisdom of each of the holy ideas helps us to clarify our orientation towards the work of, we might say, psychospiritual development. From the perspective of holy perfection, doing this work becomes a matter of not doing it from <laughs> a place of judgment, but from an attitude of surrender, surrendering to reality, the way it is and the way it unfolds. It is a matter of trusting that this surrendering, this letting go into reality is the work. That is the work. And that is, without using comparative mind, maybe for our dimension, the best work we can do. And understanding this means perhaps both seeing the delusions that stop us from surrendering, seeing all of our schema and all of our inner modes that stop us from surrendering, and watching, getting curious in the process of unfoldment itself. Our practice then becomes one of enjoying the journey, which means simply letting everything be. And of us too, just being present with whatever happens, without judgment, without comparison, just being interested, being curious and open to this perfect unfoldment of the truth within us. Being present with whatever our experience is means that we are not comparing our experience with someone else's, including with a, a self that exists in a parallel universe who is having a better experience, who is doing things differently. We are not comparing our experience now with our experience yesterday. We are not comparing our experience against some kind of standard. We are present with it because we are curious about it and want to find out what it is about. If we are judgmental about our experience, deciding whether it's good or bad, or good enough, or not good enough, then we are not open to it in a way that allows us to see it and understand it objectively. The attitude of comparative judgment and trying to change things interferes with our experience. And, of course, if we are interfering with our experience, we can't see the experience as it is. We can't enjoy the experience as it is. We can't even suffer the experience as it is. If we cannot see it as it is, we are interfering with how reality is revealing itself. And we block reality 
from revealing the truth contained within it. We stop it from showing us that we are being deluded, that we are stuck here or there, and we block reality from revealing its nature, which we realize when it does reveal itself is perfect. Comparative judgment keeps us from seeing the perfection inherent in reality, and our interference blocks it from revealing more and more of this perfection, more and more of the good stuff, because that really is the gold, the gold of perfection. A judgmental and comparative attitude blocks the flow of reality, and our energy and consciousness, which is to say the energy and consciousness of reality, become stagnant. What is needed is a surrender then to the unfoldment of our reality. And this means not going along with our comparisons and judgments. No, no, yes, mind, I can see you comparing. I can see you judging. I'm not going along with that. I am staying with the non-dual awareness of what is. The surrender then is to let understanding do its job instead of trying to make things go a certain way so that we can make ourselves into a better person or make our experience into a better thing. If we have a non-comparative and mirror-like attitude towards our experience, in time, understanding becomes the process of unfoldment itself. As reality is unfolding within our consciousness, so in this way, understanding becomes a spontaneous insight into what our situation is at this moment, regardless of whether we are experiencing a delusion or the actual presence of essence. We see it and we understand it. And that is all. That is golden. At this point, understanding becomes nothing but the revelation of the perfection of reality in its isness and in its unfolding, which may bear repeating, understanding, true understanding, becomes nothing but the revelation of the perfection of reality in its isness and in its unfolding.
what you mean. Have the pleasure of 